With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast. And here are your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. Welcome to Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour. I'm Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. And in this episode, we have special guest Kevin Anderson. He is a U.S. Open finalist and this year's Wimbledon finalist. He cracked the top five for the first time in his career in his 30s. He's now 32. Um, he went to the University of Illinois for three years, left early and to pursue a career. And I caught up with him at the Labor Cup in Chicago. So world number nine, Kevin Anderson. Let's hear from him. Thanks, Kevin, for joining us. Sure. Um, really appreciate your time. I just want to kind of talk about we're in Chicago, and you went to like Illinois, Illinois. Um, how did you end up choosing that school? And then it's two hours out of Chicago, kind of middle of nowhere. You know, what went into that process? Yeah, I came back all the way in 2004 um, when college just started recruiting me. And, you know, the more we looked at it, the more it seemed like a really good decision for me and my tennis career. Uh, Illinois just won the national championships in 2003. We were ranked one in the country at the time. Uh, the head coach, Craig Tiley, was um, there, uh, you know, from South Africa, and uh, you know, he recruited me, so I felt there was a bit of a connection there. And without actually really seeing the school or much information, those bits, you know, the three bits of information was, uh, you know, all I needed to know. And I uh, saw on that ATP video that you uh, read Tennis Magazine in, in South Africa growing up, and that was your connection to the sport. How, do you still read it? Is that something that you were a big fan of, and, and how, how is that a factor in your decisions of pro tennis and pursue this dream. Yeah, definitely coming from South Africa, we didn't have the same amount of exposure to professional tennis. Of course, we had, um, you know, the Grand Slams and a few of the bigger tournaments, but sort of the ins and outs and behind the scenes, um, most of it we got from, you know, Tennis Magazine, where, you know, went to sort of in-depth articles. And, um, you know, that was obviously something we really, you know, were interested in. And it's been great for me as just learn about everything. And uh, obviously, as you get going and you know the tennis world seems a little bit smaller it seems such a big world as as a kid but uh you know i think these days it's probably a little bit different with obviously you know your access to information and you got real life tennis uh, the website you're running is that something that came together with your wife or something that you wanted to put out there because it's a little bit unique right it's different it's a player that's actually putting this together which is really cool yeah um exactly and you know part of that was just sort of my own experiences growing up and you know we uh you know work so hard as kids and i've learned so many valuable lessons and i'm really passionate about um, you know that process, and I wanted to share that, especially for um, you know kids around the world who don't, you know, have access to professional tournaments, and you know know what sort of goes on behind the scenes. I mean, I know as a kid I would have devoured that sort of information, so I wanted to you know make that accessible, and uh, you know, it's been you know a bit of a different project, um, you know, one that I've been really excited about. Uh, so hopefully, you know, kids around the world and you know adults and everybody who plays tennis has not only sort of learned from some of the stuff, but also seen what it's like behind the scenes of it. And sitting here now, you're a two-time Grand Slam finalist. It's been kind of a big year and a half for you. Is this, did you imagine this would happen, you know, in your 30s now? It's something, obviously, the game is aging, but did you kind of imagine this was going to happen? Do you, do you feel like it's rightfully earned and you can do even more? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, you don't exactly know what's going to happen, but I always, you know, I've had a lot of belief in myself. I've always worked hard. I've never, you know, seen that 
I'm sort of tailing towards the end of my career. I mean, I don't feel like that at all. I feel like some of my best tennis is still ahead of me. Um, a lot that I want to achieve and, you know, play for. Um, you know, I haven't been able to do that yet. So that's, you know, pretty big goals for me. Um, you know, you don't, you know, you obviously don't know what the future holds. So all you can do is sort of take care of, you know, what you can in the moment. I've, you know, always tried to do that. Um, you know, I don't feel like I've lost hope or anything like it, even though I was sort of injured, you know, at 30 years old, feels like, you know, maybe a decade or two, maybe, you know, the perception was you were sort of towards the end of your career, but I think things have definitely changed with that. I mean, obviously, they just say age is a number. As long as you still have that passion and that enjoyment, I think going to college, I turned pro a little bit later, so I've always felt myself um, as a younger pro. So I hope I'm able to play for, you know, many years to come still. Things have certainly changed. Um, you had a formidable foe stop you at the Wimbledon final, Novak Djokovic. Um, he's had a pretty impressive few months. Uh, what do you think about his huge comeback in his past few months? Yeah, it's been fantastic to see. You know, of course, he's a you know icon of our sport. Um, you know, I know what it's like being away from the game. Um, you know, also having surgeries myself, and you know, being out. Um, something that he's spoken about too. And sometimes it takes time. Um, you know, you had uh, Nadal and Federer taking some time off, and they were able to find form so quickly. And you know, that's definitely I don't think the normal. I mean, you know, sometimes it can really you know take some time to you know find that rhythm, that momentum, that confidence again. And, he definitely seems like he's back after, you know, winning the last two Grand Slams, completing his Masters, um, you know, Slam in Cincinnati. So he's, you know, obviously almost back to his best. And we're in Chicago for the Labor Cup, and you were—I mean, I don't think everyone knows this—but you were a phenomenal doubles player in college. Um, how cool was it being part of a team again? This is kind of a little bit collegey, kind of the way singles and doubles, the team uniforms, different nationalities on one team. There's some similarities, you know. Is it natural for you? Uh, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely a lot of similarities back to college days where. You know, you, it's not an individual event, and you, you know, part of a team here. Um, I think, which is a nice change of pace too. Obviously, we spent all year competing against each other, and you know, now we have a, you know, great time together where we, you know, competing against each other, but in a sort of team setup. Um, you know, as you said earlier, I, I did play a lot of doubles, you know, early on in my career, but. Uh, you know, the last sort of few years, just protecting my body a little bit more, I haven't been able to play so much. And then this is all for kind of Rod Laver. So the big, the big icon is here in the flesh, um, walking around the halls. How cool is it to play a tournament that's made for him and honoring <clears throat> him? Yeah, I think it's amazing. I mean, both at the whole tournament, you know, honors him in the way it does. Um, you know, probably one of the greatest players of all time, if not the greatest player of all time. And, um, you know, just to see him get this sort of recognition and, you know, he takes it, you know, just completely in stride. I mean, you know, he's so humble about everything and um, especially for what he's, a, you know, what he's accomplished. So, you know, all of us being here playing that is, you know, it's a, you know, it's a true honor for, uh, for all of us. And uh, I think it really sort of um, shows our respect to him and his compatriots at the time. I mean, it really paved the way for, you know, us tennis players today. Yeah, it's cool. I think something honoring players that people maybe don't know that much because we kind of moved on to social media and everyone has to be famous. And you know, he was in the '60s, and things are different. Yeah, exactly. And you know, what he achieved was you know unparalleled. You know, two Grand Slams. I mean, that's you know amazing. And tennis was very different back then. You know, as you know, he was telling us the other day, it sort of cost him sort of some of his um, career statistics because he wasn't able to play all the events. But um, you know, just getting him, I think, the respect and. Um, credit that he deserves and you know I think in the tennis world specifically obviously he's very well known so it's great to sort of you know uh, expand that to everybody cool. Thank great you so thanks so much that was perfect thank you so that was Kevin Anderson I talked to him in Chicago ahead of the Labor Cup he played for Team World and ended up losing to Alexander Zverev in the final singles rubber so Team Europe ended up defending the title 
Um, Irina, what do we think about Kevin Anderson? I really like him. I think he's super nice. He has a really humble aura about him. I mean, he's pretty easy to talk to, as you can tell. And his story is pretty interesting and not that well known. I love that he's like a little bit older because that's kind of the trend right now. Doing well in your 30s is very in right now. So yeah, what do you, what do you think? Dude, old is the new new. And what is considered old anymore anyway? Because if you think about it, I mean, back in the day, people used to retire, what, at like 24, 25, 26. Now you're playing some of your best tennis when you're potentially early 30s, late 30s. I mean, look at Fed. He's honestly timeless. There was some crazy, there, there was a crazy stat the other day showing how many post 30 year olds are in the top 20. Some crazy stat is ridiculous. There's only seven 20 and under players in the top 100 on the ATP. That's not a lot. That's actually insane. Yeah, because Michael Moe just cracked the top 100 for the first time. That's why That's why I know that. That's awesome. Go American tennis. What I like, though, in, in the case of, of ATP tennis and people being in their later 30s is that they're less panicked when they're younger. It feels like if you're 16 years old right now, you can take a breather and give yourself a minute, maybe go to college for a few years. And it's okay because, hey, if you crack the top 10 at the age of 28, that's actually pretty legit. While if you 20 years ago, you have to be 19 to be top 10. I totally agree. I mean, back in the day, the amount of pressure, even even we had right before we decided to go to college, it was like, hey, you have to decide like at 17, 18, like you really have to decide. And thankfully, they made that new rule about being able to take a year off. But I mean, gosh, college used to be like the last resort. That was a failure if you did not turn pro. I mean, that's how it was. I know for most uh, European players, when I used to talk to them, they didn't know much about the college option just because pro was the only way. Oh, my God. Yeah. When we were 17, 18, it's it's like do or die. You have to decide to make this big choice. And at that age, looking back, it's scary because I was so young. We were both so young. And you have to make this huge life choice. And the safer option is going to be college always. And at no point, I don't know, I mean, you probably did, but at no point did I think to myself, oh, I'll go to college and then go pro after. I think when I was 16, I was thinking about it that way. But by the time I got to 18, I was like, no, no, I'm done here. I'm going to go to college and then just have a normal job and not even think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it just changes for some people. Some girls I know, they get to college even after being successful junior players and they are just ready to put the rackets down. They're like, I want to be normal. I want to go and have friends and go to parties and drink if I want to. Obviously, not endorsing underage drinking, but you know what I mean. Uh, but yeah, it's just a completely different dynamic. As a tennis player, I'm sure that any kind of athlete that grew up in this generation and probably generations before us, I mean, shoot, you just, it's, it's not a normal lifestyle when all you do is a certain sport. In the case of, choosing to go to college and all that. I mean, it's just crazy how much time you invest in the sport. Whenever I talk to any of these players and interview them, they always say they started playing at the age of three or four or six. I mean, it's your whole life. And then some of these players that go pro after college, I mean, so you did that. Like, I, when I was playing at UCLA, I had no interest. It didn't even cross my mind, I don't think, after my freshman year. Like, no chance. I think I got worse, honestly, and significantly worse. But in the case of someone like Kevin Anderson, um, and then I think another player that comes to my head would be like Nicole Gibbs, they finished three years. I mean, you're so close. And you're at pretty good schools. He's at University of Illinois. He's got one season left. I think they lost the championship, um, so he didn't win NCAAs. But, I mean, how do you decide, like, hey, I want to actually leave this college right now and, and not have my degree, and I'm, I'm close. But It was super difficult for me. I know that 
part of it, I was just, I felt like I was letting the team down a little bit. And uh, I knew deep in my hearts of hearts, I was just like, you know, there's really nothing more I can do. There's really nothing that, okay, I'm, I'm one in the country. I didn't win the NCAA title and got to the semis, I think. Like, I knew that, okay, what am I really going to achieve if I stay here two more years? I understand that we would have been in contention for potentially winning a uh, NCAA title. But, you know, that's also such a crapshoot. You just have no idea, right? So, yeah, I mean, it, I think it was super emotional just because my uh, coach, Brian Shelton, at the time, I mean, obviously he wanted me to stay, but he knew that at the end of the day, I did want to become a pro tennis player. So it was difficult in a sense. But at the same time, like I think in my in my heart, I knew that I wanted to continue uh, to see where tennis could take me. It worked out, though. I think in your case, you've made a career out of it. And in Kevin's case, he certainly made a career out of it. And I, I, I don't, in the interview, I don't actually ask him if he finished his degree. But, I mean, he's 32. He's got tons of time to figure everything out. I know that he already has thought about other things he wants to do. He has a website called Real Tennis, reallifetennis.com with his wife and his former coach, which, I mean, he's offering, like, in-depth tennis instruction and, like, life on tour stuff. But that means like he's put some thought into like, hey, what else am I good at? What else can I do? What else can I give to the world besides, you know, playing this sport? But he was also injured for a while. He had a lot of injuries in 2016. And I mean, he's a big guy. He's injury prone. So I think, I don't know, I feel like each person's path is different. But in his case, it'll be interesting to see what he does after just because, I mean, he's just such a nice guy and has had all this success when he's been so mature and is able to handle it. I mean, he made the U.S. Open final last year. Wimbledon final this year. He cracked the top five for the first time in his 30s. Kind of gives gives people hope, I guess, of, of, hey, like, maybe you're not the best you could be at 22, but by 28, 29, 30, you could still, some of your best tennis could still be ahead of you. Definitely with him. I think Isner as well, honestly, is playing better now than he ever has. I mean, look at someone like Caroline Wozniak. I mean, how long did it take for her to win her first slam? And, I mean, she was one in the world. She won... I don't know how many WTA titles, but yeah, she was so good. And someone like Kevin, you know that he's not going to have much of a problem, I think, in the employment department, just one, because of his accolades and what he's achieved and accomplished. But uh, yeah, he's he's such a well-spoken young man, if I uh, if I can say that. Um, I, I think that he's exceptionally smart. For really taking initiative and be like, you know what? I know that tennis is not my end-all be-all. I'm not going to be able to play until my 50s. I mean, I understand technology is a beautiful thing, but I really don't think that I have seen a professional tennis player get past the age of 45 in recent times. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and say that. So I think it's so smart. He's going ahead and you know what? I'm going to go ahead and start seeing what kind of doors could potentially be open for me once I decide to put the rackets down. And uh, who knows? There's some players out there. I mean, they may never put the racket down, whether they get into coaching some sort of, you know, developmental side with the with tennis. There's so many different avenues that can go with it. So who knows? I mean, no matter how good you are at tennis, at some point you have to stop playing. I think the Roger Federer said the word retirement for the first time, I want to say during the Labor Cup. And... I mean, it's going to happen. This guy's Roger's like pushing 40 at this point. I mean, it's good. It has to happen, right? So, like, everyone has a plan for what you do after. I think some people have to have, make a decision when they're 18 and they decide to go to college and not play tennis. 
or when they're 22 and they graduate and don't wanna, they're not going to play anymore. Or in this case, sometimes you're in your 30s and you're like, wow, like this chapter of my life is over. And I have to, you know, either I'm focusing on having a family or, you know, having a different job. And usually it's in tennis of some sort. It's like we had Daniela Hentikova on recently and she was her career is going to be in broadcast and commentating and, and sports journalism and, I mean, a natural transition. Um, Ana Ivanovic is someone I see a lot because of the Labor Cup. She went, went to the gala and all that, but she had a kid kind of like instantly right after she was done. I mean, people just move on. And it's so different for uh, men and women, obviously, because the females I have found usually end a little earlier um, just because they decide that they want to take the path into motherhood. And yes, there are obvious examples out there of women that have babies and decide to come back. So yeah, I think it's a little different for men because uh, they can go and they can sometimes they can travel with their wives and children and they can continue playing even even while she's pregnant because they're not the ones that are going to deliver the baby, obviously. We've had some big baby news this week also. I feel like we should mention that. Elena Vesnina is going to have a kid and she posted this stunning photo of herself um, that she's actually... I think quite a ways along. It doesn't say anything at all, but just from the side of it. And then Hingis also announced baby news. I mean, kind of a baby boom on the tour right now. But but Vecino was top 10 in doubles right now, and she's going to have a kid. Yeah, I mean, she's a phenomenal player. Holy cow. I've always had so much respect for her, just on and off the court. Nicest girl you'll ever meet. And honestly, I tweeted her yesterday because she was honestly glowing in that picture. But the way the lighting was set up, I mean, she it was ridiculous. She looked so good. It's it's a it's kind of entering that weird part of the year where a lot of the players are in Asia, right? You just feel so disconnected, and then everything starts to become about the off season. There's going to be like wedding news, baby news, coaching. The coaching changes are coming; those are inevitable. And then everyone goes on vacation. I mean, it's just it's just like weird. It's a weird time, but I think Singapore is still highly relevant. People are trying to qualify in the ATP finals in London, so tennis is still happening. There's one thing I want to talk about is the transitioning from like week to week when you're out at these tournaments like for example Arina Sabalenka this 20 year old amazing player on the rise top 20 already she won Wuhan the biggest title of her career WTA Premier 5 and then she has to get on a flight and get to Beijing and start all over again I mean she played Margarbine Muguruza in the first round and she beat her but like just how quickly you go from the greatest achievement of your career in this high to like okay get in a plane pack your bags put that trophy away you don't need it anymore Okay, first round, off you go. I mean, that's just insane. It's so funny that you mentioned that because a lot of people have this idea that, uh, you know, that tennis is a year-long sport. I know a lot of people know that, but they don't know how quickly the turnaround is. Um, someone like Kiki Burton, she, wins, she won a WTA 250 event in Seoul, Korea a few weeks ago, and it was the same thing. She had to get on a flight and had to play I believe the same day against Bencic and didn't end up finishing her match until like midnight. So the turnaround rate is, is pretty, is pretty extraordinary. And I actually heard a player once they interviewed Sharapova and they asked her like, you know, what makes you so good after so long being on the tour? What makes you so good? And what makes you not really think about all the losses uh, that you've had and continue to keep going. And she responded with the word amnesia. And that kind of stuck with me because it kind of gives you perspective because, yes, this was the biggest title of Sabalenka's career, but she's probably got Singapore on her mind. She knows that there's a chance that she might qualify. So she's like, you know what? I'm going to give it my all. Forget about Wuhan. Yes, it was great. We got a new week. We got a new tournament to worry about. And 
uh, I believe we actually mentioned this a while back about how journalists after a match, it's like, hey, great, great match today. You know, your next round is so-and-so. So I think the the chance and uh, the window for celebration is quite small when it comes to when it comes to tennis. I mean, you have some players, someone like Fed, who will just take six months off because he's Fed uh, and just come back and just win a slam like one does. Um, and then you have other players. So it's just week to week. That's just what you do. I used to ask the players often like, oh, how are you going to celebrate? And no one really would have a legitimate answer because one, they're not going to be like, hey, I'm going to go to the nightclub and get blackout. Like, no one's going to tell me that. I, I respect that. I understand. Champagne showers isn't going to happen. I got it. But it's like, oh, I'm going to have dinner. And then, you know, I fly out tomorrow at 6 a.m. I mean, it's just, it's instant. But the amnesia thing is useful because also when they lose, they can just move on and have a chance in three days. So, I mean, there's the pros and cons. Obviously, when you lose and you get a tournament the next week, that's great because you can go and have another chance, another opportunity. But when you win, I feel like, I don't know, like, take the week off, man. Like, celebrate, relax. Like, Go to the pool. I don't I don't know. I, I just, I can't imagine the stress of how quickly you got to turn around. I remember talking to Bethany Maddox-Sands at the U.S. Open, um, and she hadn't yet won the mixed doubles title, but I know that her doubles partner, Jamie Murray, got on a flight the day of their win to go back. I mean, like, he literally took his trophy, won a mixed doubles crown, and then got on a flight the same day. That's insane. That's actually insane, though. And I mean, to it's funny because to you, it might seem pretty crazy. I mean, that that specific example is pretty crazy. But, um, you know, to us, that's just the norm. Someone like me, I remember in 2016, I won my first WTA event, which was huge. It was uh, in April and it was in Bogota. And that same day, I think that I won, there was an earthquake in Ecuador. And uh, it was really unfortunate because... I was born there and it was my city, my hometown, like my birthplace was completely ruined. And that same day, I was super, super like mixed emotions because I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so happy I won my title. But I'm also like, holy cow, what a downer. Like, I'm so concerned about everyone over there. And I can't, it was, it was, it was a little bit bittersweet. And the whole time, like right after I was like, all right, got to figure out flights, got to make sure I have to check out a hotel, like there's just so many different things that go on right after that people just really don't know about. I mean, no one has any idea. Yeah, your case was definitely unique in that it was timed with that tragedy. I mean, that's that's just that's just terrible, and that's that just yeah, that just sucks, honestly. But but I'm, I have also seen things like Serena Williams wins the French Open and celebrated. It was a it was one of the documentaries somewhere, and it was it was she won the French Open and she was kind of feeling sick and she celebrated by like watching a Little Mermaid on her laptop and eating order out take out Chinese food. I'm like, really? That's, I don't know. Yep. It's reality. But that's, that's just, that's just the world today. I think, I mean, yeah, people are just so much more the expectation of like, Oh my God, it's such a, it's such a huge accomplishment. But you know, Madison Key, she's a close friend of mine. And she always tells me like, after huge run in her slams, like she's been doing so well in uh, recently and she'll tell me, she's like, honestly, I just want to sleep. I just sleep for like two days straight because the all all the things that happen during a slam for someone that makes it so deep, she's like, you're just so tired. Like, I remember she went to visit someone like right after her French Open uh, run. She made semis this year and she was just like, just slept for like two days straight. That was that was my that was what I did. So 
I can't even imagine the exhaustion that Serena and Madison and all these top players that make deep, deep runs. I mean, they're probably just wanting to rest and chill because there's so much going on, you know? I was reading something also, I mean, that that's relatable in the sense that uh, Juan Martin Del Potro made the U.S. Open final, and it was a disappointing final. And then he just said he was so exhausted, he went back home to Argentina and just hung out with his family for a few weeks and just chilled. I'm like, I guess that that's something in a way that's a celebration because you've earned the right to go and sleep for two days and you've earned the right to go and relax and see your family and be selfish. I remember you told me when uh, Dominika Sibolkova, she went and she uh, made finals Australia and you told me that she just like threw the biggest rager of her life and just celebrated, which is also super, super awesome. I think it's just unique for every single person. Everyone has their version of what they want to do. And I mean, there's times where even I'm sure in your personal relationships where it's like a big thing and you're just like, honestly, I just want to lay on the couch and just chill. Yeah. I mean, sometimes having a day off is a celebration, truly. Yeah. For tennis players, truly is because like their version of a day off can mean like, oh, I remember like we used to celebrate when it was a half day. It was like, oh, my God, so exciting. Just a half day. I think this all ties in. I mean, we've gone off topic a little bit talking about celebrations and everything, but it all ties in together because the way you manage your your career and the way you manage your wins and losses and your week in, week out schedule helps you, if you do it right, helps you play longer, right? So you're playing in your mid-30s because you took this week off after you won the U.S. Open five years ago or something, like, or because you took, like Federer, took a six-month chunk off to heal and to have time for himself and his family. I kind of think this plays a role because when you celebrate and you go and get you know, drunk at a nightclub, that's not going to help you for the next week. It's not going to help you for the next year. It all kind of adds up, I think. So it's all a big part of how tennis is going, I think, with celebrations and, and taking care of yourself and sleeping as all is all part of it. Recovery is the most important thing. I mean, just from a personal standpoint, I've decided not necessarily to take the rest of the year off, but just take a break from it. Just because after 10 years of doing it nonstop and uh, having a little bit of an up and down year. So I've decided to recharge my batteries a little bit and just rekindle my love affair with tennis. And uh, everybody has a different version of that. You know, I've had some players come up to me like, oh my God, you're taking time off. Like, oh my God, what is this? And I'm like, yeah, sometimes it's okay. You know, who who's to judge whether or not you need a little bit more time than as another player that does not, that can go out there day in, day out and never needs a break. But, you know, how long can you sustain that for? So I think that in today's world, especially in the tennis, just the way that it's been and the way the physicality of it, I mean, recovery is so much more uh, important than it used to be, I think. I mean, you don't have to be injured to take a break. That's what everyone, I think it's another misconception amongst the fans and observers of tennis. A, we think that when you win a tournament, you celebrate and go absolutely crazy and throws of the party. And B, we think breaks are only deserved when you're injured. And like, that's not the case at all. People have like, needs to have mental breaks. People have different reasons for stopping. And if you stop for a month, it doesn't mean anything. Like you're not quitting, you're not giving up. You're just taking a, a break to recharge. And honestly, like could be the best possible thing for like, the next few years of your career. Right, I mean, I think fans and just people like, they see athletes and celebrities and all these people as like untouchable almost like oh my gosh no they're supposed to be playing tennis like I remember even Bouchard said something like she posted a picture of her just I think going to dinner or something just so so normal so normal and someone commented and she was talking about how the only comment she was getting was like no you should be on the court you should be practicing you should be like making sure your forehand gets better your backhand gets better your serve and she's just like dude, 
I was just going to have dinner, like calm down. And people just really don't get that sometimes. And it's hard to kind of bring that back, even even with not necessarily like close family, just because I've told them about my situation. But even friends, it's like they don't even know what to talk to me about anymore because they're like, wait, hold on. You're not playing tennis. I'm like, yeah, there's there's a lot of other things that I do other than tennis. I mean, at some point, tennis will not be the full focus of everyone of your life. Like at some point, it won't be the full focus of any player's life. It's going to be something they used to do. It's just kind of the reality. Yeah, I think uh, that's a good point. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Tennis.com podcast, Inside the Tour. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Tennis.com, and you can subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcast, like iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. And I've been Nina Pantic. And I'm Irina Falcone. Thanks for listening. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. 